an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1076. Let's immediately jump in and talk about the corkboard events at ID10T.com is how you can get your thing mentioned on the ID10T community corkboard. Like Frankie, who writes, Hey, Chris and crew, first of all, I want to thank you for having Yvette Nicole Brown on your podcast. It was great to hear her perspective. She is an amazing person. Yes, I agree with you a thousand percent. Um, when you put the call out for creators at the end of that podcast, I was grateful. There's a board game being produced right now that needs more attention brought to it. The game is Factions Battlegrounds. It was created by Jason Creighton and Peter Ferry. They created this game when they were in fifth grade, but have recently rebuilt the world to be more inclusive and diverse. They didn't just stop at their world building because they've hired an equally diverse group of artists to bring this world to life. Um, you can find it on Instagram. The account is Factions Battlegrounds, uh, or you can go to FactionsBattlegrounds.com. Thank you for your time and for reaching to bring awareness to creators that might not have the chance otherwise. Frankie, Frankie, thank you so much for writing in, and I did check this out, and it does look amazing. In fact, I signed up for the email list, so... Um, so hopefully I'll get updates as to when it's available and uh, I will let everyone in the ID10T community know as well. Thanks again, events at ID10T.com, uh, to promote your thing or thing that you are excited about. Let us know. This episode is Diallo Riddle, who is an incredible artist. I mean, he's, uh, an Emmy nominated writer and an actor and a musician and a DJ and a producer and a showrunner. Um, he was on the show Marlin. He was on the show rise, but he also, um, wrote for, uh, late night with Jimmy Fallon for a long time. He co-created slow jam, the news, which I'm sure you've seen. And he and his writing partner, Bashir Salahuddin have created this amazing show called Southside on comedy central while simultaneously, Simultaneously, they created a musical variety sketch comedy show called Sherman's Showcase, which was on IFC, and now that has been uh, absorbed by AMC as well. So it runs on IFC and AMC. Um, and if that's not enough, he also, on the music side, helped put together the music uh, with Edgar Wright for Baby Driver. So he's he just literally does everything. Uh, incredibly talented, super nice guy. And he and his writing partner, Bashir, are legit comedy geniuses. So they've already made amazing stuff now, and I am just so excited to see what amazing... Uh, huge things that they're they're going to create in the future. So it was a real pleasure to have him on. And their first show, Southside, you can and should watch, uh, is on Comedy Central. And Comedy Central has put uh, those episodes up on the internet as well. And Sherman's Showcase, Black History Month's spectacular special, Friday, June 19th. 
Sherman Showcase Marathon on IFC begins at 4 p.m. Pacific, and then the special airs at 8 p.m. Pacific. Uh, meanwhile, the special airs on AMC at 7 p.m. Pacific. So there you go. It's you. You actually could watch the special uh, on AMC at seven, and then jump back over and see it on IFC at eight. Uh, so there you go. Congratulations to Bashir and Diallo for two fantastic shows running simultaneously um, that are both gonna make more episodes. So here's the ID ten T number ten seventy six with Diallo Riddle. your wallpaper man oh thank you yeah it's this kind of like weird steampunk wallpaper that my wife found and we had she had extra of it and so this i'm actually <laughs> i like she had extra wallpaper <laughs> had extra wallpaper my wife is like wallpaper like queen of wallpaper like she finds the best wallpapers and this is actually the podcast room that we normally podcast out of but I'm just in here now and we're doing it on a uh, computer because, you know, hey, coronavirus and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I told I mean, Jimmy I what he said about, um, about how, like, because he was talking about how he does the show now. And he's like, we're all learning this stuff. And I was like, you know, I was talking to Chris Hardwick the other day. And he was like, yeah, we finally caught up to what YouTubers have been doing for the last 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. And then like, but like patting ourselves on the back, like it's yeah. a great sacrifice <laughs> guys. I am broadcasting from get this, my, my dining room. Whoa. Wow. What a broadcast. Like the YouTubers are like, Fuck you, man. Yeah, You've been, doing, this You've been doing it with less than you have in your pocket right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they've been, when this started to go down, I was like, man, YouTubers were, they've, this is, they, they blazed this trail. This is ground that they seeded all these years. Did you ever hear, um, did you ever hear, and I don't know if we're wasting good, good banter, but no, did you ever hear the story about, um, I forget if it was Ben Affleck or Matt Damon, but back when they were doing Project Greenlight, um, I think it was Ben, actually. I, I heard him speak one time, and he was like, you know, I, I look back at Project Greenlight with a lot of regret and not for the reasons that you're probably thinking, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> like, he was like, I literally went back and I, I looked at some notes that we were taking back in the time, and we had all these ideas about how we would have people deliver their short films to us. And he said that, um, you know, like the, at the time they were working really hard on people being able to upload their movies to, you know, a server so that they could actually watch them without them having to send in a VHS tape. And he's like, so basically in our interest of making tons of money in Hollywood, which we never made on any of the films that we ever did at Project Greenlight, he was like, but if we had ever cracked the code on uploading videos straight from your laptop, <laughs> we could have invented YouTube and we wouldn't have to be these clowns in these clown suits still yeah. trying to make funny, stupid movies. He was like, we could have just solved all our problems by inventing YouTube. 
Well, it is. It's hard to. It's hard to remember that there was a time. I mean, it's kind of funny to have like, you know, old man computer talk. Like in my day, you had to. You uploaded a video the size of a postage stamp. But you know, like you look at the guys. You look at like the Rooster Teeth guys who have been doing it since they had to like upload. I think maybe QuickTime videos, and then there was a time where you had to host the video, so you had to pay for the traffic. You know, like you had to pay for the bandwidth. If your video got downloaded, yeah. a bunch, you had to pay for that. Like you're so, like, guys, stop watching the video, please. This is killing me. <laughs> please watch this, but don't watch this. Just don't watch it, enjoy it, but don't tell your friends, please. Don't, yeah, please don't pass this around. I cannot afford for you to pass right. this around, guys. It's not like VHS, okay? It's a different it model. Isn't, yeah, we, we we don't we don't even ha- we haven't invented the word monetize yet. We don't know what that means. So we're still. I lost all that money on pets.com in uh, 2000. So I still think that's the best mascot that just didn't get a chance. It's such a cool mascot, but I'm a sucker for a puppet. So there you go. What, I mean, any t- you know, that mascot is probably available on eBay somewhere. You could probably get that. You mascot. Get the original. Yeah. You probably get the, I guarantee you n- no one and probably not for much. You know what I mean? Like exactly. you probably could, you probably could find that. You probably could find that somewhere. <laughs> Do you think it's, do you, I mean, I I always say like, there's no excuse for creators now to not make whatever they want because we have all these resources at our, at our feet that we didn't have. You're, you're just a few years younger than I am, but do you, you, so you must, you remember the pre-social media video upload era and the post era. Would you have preferred uh, to grow up now, or do you like kind of having the analog background that you grew up in? Man, you know, the, I bought these turntables on, a, I applied for a credit card and bought these turntables in 1996. You know, oh, yeah. it was like the first time, like I was a college freshman and I was like, hey, I really want to do this. And then, oh, the freshman credit card, they always think. Freshman always, credit card. And by the way, I was paying off, the, I was paying off this $1,000. I was paying that off for years. Like I definitely paid more. <laughs> These are probably ten thousand dollar turntables because <laughs> I was like twenty five dollar minimum payment. I could afford that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think there's like the the light outside that usually makes this all like a wonderful camera obscura is like perfectly positioned right now on my car so that it's actually throwing a shadow on my face. So I think that'll be gone in like a couple of seconds but that's try. totally fine listen the, the video is not gonna i just ripped the audio off these anyway so oh that's great oh my god yeah, that's tough, yeah this is just i'm just doing videos so that because i just i just like being able to talk to people oh this is know. great no i, I love yeah. this by the way i'm gonna keep the jacket on because it tells the kids that i'm working like the, <laughs> that, the laser is basically yeah, like is jacket on <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you about that with kids during the virus right because you your schedule, like the number of, you work on a lot of stuff and you work on a lot of really great stuff too. Oh, and what, when I think about, especially now, it really feels like, do you, would, would you say now, like, uh, do you feel like you've sort of passed, you're, you're like jumping to the next, does it feel like you're jumping to the next level career-wise? How does it feel to you? Um, a little bit. Look, I'm really happy that, um, you know, like, cool. <laughs> you're talking about kids and COVID. And of course I was just handed this. Hey, oh, uh, hey go, go show mama. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. Yellow just threw the ball to distract. 
and he looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, wait a second. This, I, I was showing you the ball. I wasn't a... Uh... <laughs> now you're making me chase it down. Hey, babe, do you mind watching Desmond for a sec? Do you mind watching Desmond? I'm, I'm doing a podcast right now. Is that okay? Okay, love you. Thanks. It's never going to sound like a real thing, no matter how many, no matter how big podcasts get, no matter how much, you know, no matter how much money comes into podcasting, when you say daddy's doing a podcast, it's just never going to sound like a real thing. All right, dad. Well, when you're done. It doesn't even convince the house, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking like a schizophrenic man talking to his computer right now. You know, Daddy's doing his podcast now. What, Dad? Come on, come on Dad. What are, you, what are you doing? I gave you a ball. Very big episode. A ball is more important than a podcast. Yeah. Um, no, you were, you were asking about like how it feels right now. I would say that the um, that it does feel different than it did even just a year ago. You know, we were on the cracks of having two shows that were uh, really well received, but nobody had seen them yet. And now I feel like people have seen the shows. One is on Hulu, so most people have you know, either Hulu or access to a Hulu. Um, and then, uh, so it does feel different. You know, we, we, we just found out today that we have season two on both shows. I'm so excited about that. Um, oh, so season two of Sherman's and season two of Southside? Season two of Southside was announced a little bit ago, like maybe in October, but season two of Sherman's is brand spanking new information. It was just announced today. Congratulations. And thank you. With the additional win and victory of the fact that it is also now an amc show in addition to just an ifc show that's um, fantastic which is awesome yeah yeah and 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 now i'm angry because i also work for amc so i could have gotten an advanced We're in the same copy family. of it yeah i could have gotten an advanced copy of sherman's showcase and it didn't i didn't ah, god damn it well this is fantastic news this means number one um <laughs> you don't need dead you don't need the video, dude. Oh, did your video just go down? No, my uh, my wife just closed the, the garage doors. So now... <laughs> <laughs> this is all tracking with what people think a podcast is, by the way. I'm so sorry. This has not happened at all anytime this week. Is this scary? Is of, this... Any, of, any like, show, of any that. show for this to happen on, this is the perfect one. So you are totally fine. I'm having a seance right now. No, I, <laughs> listen, man, I think that... Um, <laughs> If, if anything, uh, maybe one, maybe we can do a one-off talking Sherman at the end of the season. Or talking Sherman would be a fantastic. I would do a talking Sherman, and you have to come on Talking Dead if you're caught up on Walking. Oh, I, by the way, I have never fallen behind. I feel like there's a whole thread of my uh, of my phone, which is just my family members across the country, and that thread started about the time they got to uh, Terminus, and it's mm-hmm. never stopped. Every single brand new episode. There's at least one time where my sister Spring will say, "Oh no, I haven't watched it yet. Don't don't talk. Don't start texting don't, about it. Don't think that I didn't notice the Walking Dead shout out in episode one of Southside uh, <laughs> when a character pulls out what he calls Lucille Jenkins, yeah. which I don't want to spoil anything, uh, but it yeah. is definitely worth a watch if people haven't seen Southside. This show's great, and it and it and you know having all these things fall into place, especially now, is such a a beautiful time because the re- if you want to talk about having a seance, let's have a seance for what the business was, you know, before March 13th, you know, because yeah. it has, it was already rapidly changing. And then the virus just accelerated the breaking Anything apart and the changing. Yeah. 100%. I mean, like the number of people in an effort to save money because money's tight out there right now, you know, like the number of people who, you know, canceled subscriptions to basic cable. I mean, like, it definitely affects the, you know, 
the uh, the ecosystems that we sort of you know make our living through. Um, it's kind of a hairy time, but you know that was already accelerating as well. So you know between people going to streaming, people leaving, you know, broad, like as a person who writes shows, I often think now, well, do I where do I put this? And I always want to know right off the bat, like where's the streaming side of it? Because I do think that people do get a lot of their uh, if you're not on streaming, it's almost like you're not existing. Even even with the Sherman Showcase special, I get people say, oh man, what channel is it on? I'm like, AMC. And they're like, oh, but when's it going to be on Netflix? Or when's it going to be on Hulu? Or it's like, <laughs> I'm like, guys, it hasn't even come on TV yet. There's usually like a 90-day a window before it goes to streaming. Um, you know, we're just all learning as we go. I wish I lived in more simple times. There's a part of me that's like, man, just to have two shows on the air in 1976, that would have been insane, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, like 40 million people a night would watch a show. <laughs> 20 million people and you're canceled. They're like, done. dude, we're yeah. oh, it's you a, it's off. A tank. It tanked 20 million people. <laughs> you're done forever. You're, you're, you're finished in this business. I want to go back and see like what Pink Lady and Jeff made that got them canceled after three episodes. They're probably getting like 15 million viewers or something like that. <laughs> it, was, it would have definitely been an insane number. And now, you know, now like people are like, hey, uh, uh, a couple million people watch this network show. That's a big deal, right? You almost got a million people to hey. stop playing Fortnite and tune into a show. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the Fortnite kind of spins back into where I was headed before, which is when you when you have as much work that you have, which is writing work, which is which is focus. I can I personally can't be distracted while I'm writing, but you know, there's, but you also have a family at home, d d kids to, how many kids do you have? We have, we have three boys. Three boys. So yeah. during the quarantine, how have you, how have you and your wife found time to balance time for yourselves, balance time for the kids, balance time for your work? Uh, um, it's interesting. I feel like, you know, and this is a, you know, Brittany is such a wonderful, wonderful uh, partner, if you will. Um, she, she's definitely taken on 90% of the watch the children low during these times. Um, she's an accomplished choreographer. She's the choreographer on Sherman Showcase. Um, and she also has like a, a party planning service uh, called Riddle My Party. But at the end of the day, during this time, there aren't a lot of parties and there are not a lot of choreography gigs. So she's taken on that burden, even as I feel like in some ways my work has ramped up. It's been, you know, a very busy period in terms of writing because there is sort of this we're stocking up on scripts to shoot when we can go back to shooting. Um, I should say season two of Southside is finished. Like we've already written the scripts. Now, will we have to go back and rewrite some? Sure. We're going to have to go back and rewrite some of the scripts because, you know, we have scenes at parades. We have scenes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we have Soldier Stadium. Like it's just insane. Like, we wanted there, to do that thing from the second or third Matrix where they were having that rave underground and everyone was like smearing all over each other. I think we're not going to be able to do that anymore. We're not going to be able to shoot that scene anymore. By the way, the first time I even saw that scene, I was just, I literally wondered what movie I'd walked into. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was strange. It was, it that was, that was a weird moment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we are talking about maybe going back and rewriting some of the scenes and episodes so that you don't have like, there's literally so many. COVID unfriendly scenes in the current season of Southside 2 as currently written. Like we have a whole scene where there's a tornado. So you can crowd like 25 characters into a basement. Like we can't do that. <laughs> like, oh, no. I think we might as well do like a handshaking competition. Like it's just like as, un as COVID unfriendly as you can possibly get. But it also, um, it, I think it's, 
we're just so much more aware now, I feel like, than we ever had to be about. It's just that whole layer of stuff you just never had to think about before that now is not only you have to think about it, but strongly informs the kind of stuff that you can even do anymore. On every level, on every level. And and just, um, you know, I actually don't mind the Zoom rooms as much. Like writing... <laughs> Writing a show with a group of people in a Zoom is not as much fun as being all gathered around the table, but it's still there are still moments where everybody's like in tears and laughing deliriously, and that that part of it is still the same. You know, I will say when you pitch a <laughs> when you do pitch a a bad joke in the room, it doesn't hurt as much because you can kind of get a couple of nervous laughs, and you're like, okay, that went over like a blur, and you move on. On a Zoom, like nobody laughs. And then you kind of like want to be like, is my am I am I muted, guys? And I'm like, and they're like, no, you're not muted, you know, like so. They're like comedically, yes, you are, but not yeah, comedically. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty painful, but um, but yeah, we don't know what we can shoot. We don't know when we're shooting. Uh, I know that some people are getting back to shooting. A lot of unscripted reality stuff is starting maybe as early as this week. Um, right. But everything else, you know, we just shot a John Legend Father's Day special, which is coming on Sunday. And that was all drone shots and, you know, these gigantic crane, you know, it was ABC, so they could afford like drones, crane shots, like all these things that allowed the crew to be completely distanced. Um, but it was still, it's still just weird. Like just even, I don't leave the house that much. I'll be honest. Like even when I go out to pick up groceries or something that we absolutely need, I find the the atmosphere and the mood outside just to be weird. Like the people who aren't wearing masks, I'm like, why, why are they not wearing masks? The people who are wearing masks, I'm like, you know, it's it's just it's, the whole vibe out there is really weird right now. It it is very strange, and uh, I see more people not wearing masks than wearing masks. Than wearing masks. Yeah, I know. So yeah, I just kind of feel like, oh, okay, well, I don't know, like whether or not you believe that it helps, like you know, it's probably just a nice sort of like, hey, everyone, just know that I care about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we're all in this. I care about your grandmother and I care about your cousin with asthma. Yeah, I would think that, you know, I also think it's a matter of the people who can afford to stay home, the people who are, you know, really taking this thing seriously. We're not going to be out on the street just, you know, doing stuff. So it's really, it leaves just the people who I feel like are probably thinking, I would hope nobody thinks it's a hoax, but it, it it's sort of a self-selected group, I would think, that's like, going returning to the restaurants and returning to uh the gyms right now you know what i mean like I think yeah. that's probably why you see the people that you do see out there are probably not the ones who are going to be that adept at wearing masks but i saw a report where like one in two americans one in two 50 percent um feel like they're only going to wear masks sometimes you know so <laughs> that's such a weird statistic keep <laughs> I feel like I'm only going to do it. I got to be honest. I'm just going to do this sometimes. And if I'm really being honest, probably not that much at all. If I'm being honest. Yeah. But if I, I'm I, around I, people yeah. coughing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I carry one. I mean, I have one in my back pocket right now. Like I got a bunch of these and they're just easily washable. And I just put, totally. them on, I put it on and, you know, and, and I just sort of feel like, you know what? If it doesn't, I, I don't mind. Like it's not that, it's not that much harder to just do this if it, you know, if it keeps keeps everyone safe but I, I i'm extra aware because my wife has um she has some kidney stuff that would not be great if she got right right so, and that, you know 
I, I yeah, I I think that that's I think that's the way to go. And you know, nobody wants to be lectured to, nobody wants to be preached to, but you know, trust the numbers. The numbers are not going down the way that we like to think that they are. So I, I, I would just encourage people to just look at the numbers and trust your as pilots always say, trust your instruments. You know, if the instruments say that you're losing altitude, you know, make a course correction. You know, right now, uh Texas, Arizona, and Florida are just, you know, they're not doing they're not doing good. So um, you know, just take that as you may. And now we pause to thank the sponsor for this episode of the ID10T podcast, Raycon Earbuds. Um, you, you may know this. Uh, if you listen to a lot of other podcasts, you've probably heard on other podcasts about Raycon Earbuds. They start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands. Uh, their newest model, the Everyday E25, are the best ones yet. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Um, they're incredibly comfortable, perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. And now that most of us work from our homes now, <laughs> you know, like we need... We kind of need isolated audio in our ears to drown out um, everything else that's going on in our household. So this is a great option for that. Um, they're stylish. They're discreet. There are no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. Um, celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy are obsessed with Raycons. So pick up a pair and see what everyone's talking about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash ID10T. That's buyraycon.com slash ID10T for 15% off. And now we glide seamlessly back into the ID10T podcast already in progress. I would love to talk about your comedy background a bit because you've worked on great shows and you're in a great sketch group. Uh, and going further back, you went to Harvard. And I mean, the, the, the Harvard comedy, like Harvard comedy is sort of a, is it as legendary as the tales? Like, what is the comedy scene like at Harvard? Uh, you know, it's crazy. I feel like, um, <laughs> I feel like there were, several comedy tracks at Harvard. There were the guys who went out for the, uh, you know, the improv groups. And that was sort of what Bashir and I would tend to do. We would, we would, we were the silly jokesters at the, at the table when everybody else was getting great grades. We thought it would be, you know, important for us to go to the table and make everybody laugh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, priorities. Uh, but then there were these other, there was a whole other track, the Lampoon track. And I got to say, and I, and I hope I don't anger anybody, but, you know, the Lampoon is a lot like a college team. Like, it changes out every four years. There's no institutional memory there. So some four years are better than other four years. And the four years that I was there, I mean, like, I don't remember them ever putting out anything that I thought was hilarious. You know, when I wanted to read funny college publication, I read The Onion, you know, which was uh, fully, I think at the time, was fully still just at uh, University of Wisconsin. Um, There was actually another comedy mag i want to say it was like called dragon or rodent or whatever that was put out by a completely different group of harvard guys that we all really love we thought it was really funny um but the four years i was there i i, I culturally i could not have seen myself pledging because you do have to like pledge to be a member of the uh of the lampoon but you know lo and behold the second i graduated every every time i you know went out for a job they were like oh did you do the lampoon and i was like dude i wasn't sweating the lampoon um <laughs> I feel like Bashir and I, our comedy is different maybe because we didn't go through that rubric of the camp of the Lampoon. Uh, even to this day, when we're hiring writers for our rooms, 
I'll read a lampoon. I actually read a, a lampoon's uh, alumni submission not too long ago and thought it was brilliant. She's clearly, she's clearly very funny. So we're not against that, but I do feel like uh, sometimes it's overstated this idea that like Harvard comedy writers are 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 any better. Sometimes they're worse. I've I've met a couple of Harvard guys. I'm like that dude is getting hired because he went to Harvard. He is not that funny. Um, what did, what did you study? Man, you know, I, I, I could have done better. I went in there as an econ major, but econometrics just started kicking my butt. Like econometrics is this heavily applied mathematic uh, version of economics. And it was really just, it was applied math. And I was, I never had that. I was always good in school. I never had that sense of drowning. Like no matter how hard I study, I cannot get this. And uh, I will never forget uh, the professor's name was Otto. And uh, Otto was like, well, just keep trying, Diallo. But like, I couldn't get it. Like, uh, that was my best German accent, by the way. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get it. I, I couldn't understand. Um, what, so I switched to the humanities, like, like a good kid who wanted to, you know, keep making A's. And, uh, and, I, and I took history and I took the American sectional crisis because I had grown up in the South. And when you grow up in the South, you're constantly seeing these Civil War markers and placards. Right. And I grew up loving just reading and knowing everything there was to know about the Civil War. I grew up on a creek uh, in Georgia and the Battle of Utoy Creek. I love the fact that there had been a battle of the Civil War like right behind my house at one point. So that that became my love and my interest and, and sort of became my love of story. Because up until that point, all the writing I had done had been political at the Kennedy School and the uh, Harvard Political Review. Um, after, after I sort of discovered my love of story, all my work became fiction again. Um, I sort of went back to third grade me who would write spy novels with Royce Riddle, the World War II black spy who somehow was able to infiltrate the Nazis and kill Hitler. Uh, you know, that, that was- You're definitely going to write that, right? I mean, like that oh, is definitely a thing. I, okay. My mom saved all the books that I published. Cool thing about my elementary school, they found out that I was a writer. So like in, in kindergarten, ironically, I, I published- a book called the the true book of dinosaurs and all the parents thought it was funny that I put the true book like all the rest were lying <laughs> and that book I mean blatant plagiarism I just copied passages out of my favorite books about dinosaurs but uh between that and then by the age of yeah by the time I was eight I was really into world war ii uh indiana jones had an effect on me I wanted to know everything about the nazis and the allies I played axis and allies for that reason um you know I just yeah that's that's where my uh, that's where my writer bug comes from. But also your sketch group at Harvard um, wasn't just you and Bashir, but also Wyatt Snack was in it and Robin Thede. Like well, that it was, was our a first sketch group after college. That was that when was we after college. college. Yeah, and we had nothing going on. And I was in a sketch group, and Bashir was in another sketch group, but we were still friends. And then one day we sat down, and I was like, you know what? I like my sketch group, but I'm always the co-pilot. I can never be the pilot. And Bashir was like, you know, they always make me the chef. And we figured out that, like, we should form, like, an all-black sketch group, which at the time, it's amazing that there weren't that many of the There weren't that, that many of those. And uh, so we, we decided we were going to pull away from our sketch group where we were the only black guy, and we were going to form our own black sketch group. And we, only, and we auditioned, and the people that we auditioned have all gone on to much better, greater stuff. Like, it was me, Bashir, Robin Thede, Wyatt Sinek, uh, this actress named Nefertari, Spencer, Nika King, who's on HBO's Euphoria. Um, just everybody in that group has just kind of like gone on to do great stuff. And we still stay in touch. I, Robin Thede texted me right before 
uh, we started recording this to say congratulations on season two. We've all stayed friends and we always talk about doing a reunion show one day. It's really going to be were, an alliance time. <laughs> when, when you, so when you're doing, when you're in these other sketch groups that you break away from, are you, are you able to have conversations with them? Like, hey, um, you know, can we talk about like different types of roles or different, you know, I'm submitting these type of sketches and they're not getting through or what's the, I mean, what are the conversations around that? The conversation was uh, pretty short. It was just like, hey, can I, can I do something other than, but you know, I would always try to make a, a, a meal out of my snack. So let's, I, I'll never forget the time that they made me the co-pilot when I really wanted to play the pilot. Um, Cause it was a much better part. I just decided I was going to just really eat up that one minute that I had in the sketch. <laughs> so when the pilot died, I just, I, I, I went big. I admittedly went big, but the audience ate it up. And I was like, okay, so sometimes it can be fun to be the co-pilot. But really, it was just a matter of, you know, and I think this is still the case because, you know, my wife, when she decided she wanted to do more like comedy and her choreography, she joined, uh, she started attending UCB here in L.A., and I see now that like even more than ever, like there's so much politics and there's so much uh, just interpersonal politics that go into which Herald group you join. And, and, and uh, you know, like I, I think anybody who, who's been to a UCB or, or IO or any of those places, Second City, you know, there's just so much that goes into which group you get to join. And, and uh, yeah, it's tough, man. It's really tough. You know, people don't always get to be in the group that they want to be in. So then you make the group that you want, and then did it did it immediately feel like, oh yes, this is what I've been. It immediately felt, yeah. So nowadays I think it's called the Comedy Central stage, but back then we we were able to we actually borrowed seven hundred and fifty dollars from Bernie Mac. One of our actresses was a PA on the Bernie Mac show. And she went to Bernie and she's like, Hey, we want to rent this space to put up a, a sketch show. And by the way, this is like there was no YouTube yet. I want to say that there was um YouTube might have been there, but people still really wanted to be on E-Bomb's world. That was, that was the, <laughs> the pinnacle. That was like the Tonight Show for Sketch. <laughs> um, I haven't heard that name in so long. It was just like, oh, E-Bomb's world. Oh, you made it. <laughs> um, so that was, that was the goal. But if you couldn't do that, then you had to tell people, hey, I'm a really funny person. This is where you can find me. You couldn't send a link. You had to be like, you have to hop in your car at 6.30 and be across town on Santa Monica and Poinsettia at seven o'clock and see me on a stage where I'm going to hopefully have enough people there where you're not the only person in the audience. Um, but the very first time we stood that sketch show up, packed house. Like we had 99 people there. It was standing room only and it killed. And everything that we wrote really rocked. And, and, uh, and from that point on, we knew that we were on the right track. Uh, just a give you a short uh, version of where we went from there. We started shooting uh, videos for YouTube. One of them went viral. It was a video called Condi Rice Raps. But it got 2 million views in a day back when that was good enough to get you signed to CAA. Yeah. It was like, it was like we're going to be the jib jab guys, sure enough. And, uh, you know, so we, we, got to, we went to Aspen for the comedy festival. And uh, Jimmy Fallon saw some of our work. And then he hired us because he was taking over the Tonight Show. Uh, not the Tonight Show, uh, Late Night taking over late night from Conan. And uh, that was when our lives changed because we packed up our lives. We moved to New York and we were there for the next four years writing Slow Jam the News and uh, History of Rap and a, a bunch of Real Housewives of late night comedy and, and just having a lot of fun uh, in 30 Rock. And it was, you know, that was, that was our break into this business. Sketch, sketch and improv people, I feel like, have such a leg up in the business 
because you are the you are writers and performers and you know how to produce like you have to know how to produce it it really just seems to encapsulate you know stand up is such its own specific thing that a lot of times can be difficult to translate into other parts of the business but when you do what you do it you learn so many different facets of the basics of storytelling storytelling as quickly as possible uh again producing writing acting all the different elements that make lighting music you know all the different elements that make a show a show and chris i, I gotta say i've never thought of it like this before and it's so interesting because i've spent most of my creative life envying the people who can get up with just a mic and tell jokes to a room full of people who don't know them sometimes they're drunk <laughs> they're in a weird city <laughs> you know like i mean like I, i've always had so much respect because i I would love to do stand-up. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't think it can be necessarily taught to a person, even though there have been times in life, I'm like, if life ever slows down, I'm going to sign up for like a introduction to stand-up class or something like that and, and, and do that. But, um, but I do think you're right about the production element because when you do sketch, even if you're just doing it on a stage, you have to figure out, okay, we have this much money, so we're going to spend this much on wigs, we're going to spend this much on costumes, we're going to try and pay everybody just a little bit of it. Like that's like baseline, very basic production. And you're right. Like that, that's the side of it that I feel like you only get when you do sketch. And when, honestly, anybody working at SNL or late night with Seth or the tonight show, all those writers have to produce their own bits. So when you pitch it at 9am in the morning and Jimmy comes back with his decisions about which sketches are going to be in the show that night at 11, then you basically have two hours to, rewrite do some basic pre-production then walk it into jimmy read it with jimmy and then for the next two hours three hours you're literally running around to every department trying to figure out okay i need this much you know we need jimmy's guitar i'm going to work with the roots on the song get me those wigs and that you know that hair dye and like all that stuff has to be done by the time the audience fills in at five o'clock now everybody's working from home now so it's much different beast um i don't know how you produce these shows in a, in a COVID environment. It seems like everybody's doing much more intimate discussion type uh, stuff and the sketches have been greatly toned down. But uh, if we ever find that vaccine, uh, it'll be interesting. <laughs> but I just think a sketch, I mean, first of all, I think you could do stand up because if you just did it a bunch, you'd figure it out. And, you know, what I would say to, to sketch people is like, if you're interested in trying stand up, Ultimately, I think stand-up is really, it's, it can be hard when you don't do it a lot to, th to think about it because what you don't realize is like, oh, you're, you, you tend to think of it as some other thing. Oh, when you're doing stand-up, you're doing some other thing, but it's just the more you, you can draw out on stage, like you're the thing. And that's kind of hard to conceptualize at some point because you're like, well, I'm just me. I don't know what, you know, but then the more you do it, you figure it out. But with, at least with sketch people too, you could probably write from the point of view of like, the character of Diallo first. <laughs> and then that... I've never thought of that before. I'm, I'm not going to lie. That is such an interesting... Maybe I should just pretend like Diallo Riddle is a character and just write. Because I have... I, I'll, I will say I have written not stand-up material, but like there's a pretty famous comedian who came to us one time and was like, I just want you guys to tell me like some areas that you think I should write my stand-up to. And so then we would just like go through the news and like pull out things that had happened and then just say, hey, we think these are interesting takes on what's happened. And then he would go off and write. But right. I, I, but maybe if I had to think, oh, I need to write as, wasn't Chris Rock, but like if I was like, oh, I'm going to write some stuff in the voice of Chris Rock. I mean, right. I think that gets towards the heart of like, 
having a clear voice to write in, um, having a, a POV that people are like, because we all know that Chris Rock joke is going to be different from a Dion Cole joke is going to be right. different from a Marlon Wayans joke or something like that. Right. Yeah. But I just, I, you know, what I notice about, you know, particularly with a show like Southside is that your first episode already felt like it could have been season three, you know, where it's like, because the characters are so well-defined and, and I, I can't help but wonder, do you think like when, when you have such a strong background in sketch and you're putting on a live show and you're doing a series of sketches, do you think it's fair to say like, there's really no time, like all the characters have to be very clearly defined for the audience because they have to know right away. They have to get right away what the angle on the scene is so mm. that they can follow along with it. Yeah. Well, you know, we, a couple of things on that. First off, I think one of the reasons why Southside feels so lived in from the very first episode is that we went out of our way to cast people who were not actors in Hollywood. We went to Chicago and did all our auditioning there. And in, in some cases, they were just people from Bashir's past because Bashir grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Atlanta. He grew up in Chicago. So if there was a character who drove a bus, uh, the, you know, it might be that guy who actually, it might be a guy who actually drives a bus. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there's actually a pretty fun scene in episode two where we were shooting on a bus and it was supposed to be our version of, of speed. <laughs> you gotta watch the show. It'll make sense. <laughs> um, but we were shooting an episode that was supposed to be taking place on a bus and the bus driver, who's just an actual Chicago bus driver was saying things that made us laugh. So we were like, Hey, let's turn the camera around and, put him on i mean i think some of that has to do with our time at fallon too because at fallon the cast of the show changed every day like every day there was a new guest star so you had to figure out what you know how to get them to fit into this fit into the show and and similarly we would do a lot of work on Southside with people who were not professional actors but they were funny people so it was just a matter of getting them to stay themselves and not somehow become an actor portraying themselves um so I think that's why the show felt like it could have been in season three, because those are real Chicagoans. You know, there's 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 very little artifice there. I think the most famous person in season one is probably Lil Rel or maybe Kel Mitchell. But uh, everybody in that show is from Chicago, except for me. I'm the one faker who uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually addressed that in season two. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's uh, it's, it's a lot of fun working on Southside because it's it's there's so much of it that's just authentic there's you know like i said we didn't we went to the city and we had you know a very rigorous audition process and we found some talented actors who'd never done anything outside of theater local theater have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug ignored a leaky faucet pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that well you're not alone we've all got unfinished home projects but there's an easier way when you download thumbtack it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, 
where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. And uh, so having that eye for talent too, does it, does it sort of make you go, oh, why don't we go to more cities and find, you know, like instead of just, you know, the same pool of actors that, you know, like does it, does it sort of inspire you to go, you know, if we uncover this treasure trove of people in Chicago, how many other cities have performers that we should, you know? Seriously. I mean, listen, I should say that our first foray into scripted was actually a show about Atlanta called Brothers in Atlanta. It was the show about my hometown. And it was the first thing we did after Fallon. And then we were in development at HBO for four very long years. And it's uh, it's still a little bit of a bittersweet memory because we learned so much on that that we were able to take those lessons and quite honestly, even some of those ideas and apply them to Southside. But uh, I think Atlanta, my God, like I just, I can't go to Atlanta without laughing. Like there's so many personalities and the city of Atlanta talks to you. Like you can be in line at the varsity, you can be in an Uber, like, People in Atlanta, they talk in their perspectives and that accent that I grew up hearing, because my family's from LA. I was I was the weirdo kid who didn't have an Atlanta accent. But, you know, like I went to the same high school as Goody Mob and we went to the rival high school of Outcast. Like those thick accents um, of the city, like I, I still dream of doing a show in Atlanta one day because I just think Atlanta's just bubbling over with just funny people. Um, I, I would love to pull that talent one day. And are you are you starting to get to a point where, because I imagine there's going to, I imagine you're probably at a point where there's so much stuff coming in. Do you want to be able to say yes to everything? Do you still have that sort of that 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 young performer thing where you're like, oh my god, I can't, I gotta, I can't say no to work. Like this is what I work for, you know. But at a certain point, I mean, you only have people only have so much energy in their bodies, and so how are you? sort of staying on course and picking and choosing and making sure well, that you have a weird way. This industry has a weird way of sometimes choosing for you. There's a project that you, I, I, uh, I would love for it to happen just so I can tell you this has happened. Um, but right now it looks like we're on hold and it's only because the executive we've been working with might be, you know, it might be unceremoniously tossed out at some point. You know what I mean? Like, and it kills me because this is an idea and I can't, I won't, I won't out it right now because I don't want to get in trouble, but uh, let's just say it's a spinoff of a movie that I'm sure most people love, but they would not think there's a spinoff there, but I've seen it 8 million times and there's a character in a five minute scene that I'm like, what is that guy's story? What is his story? He is amazing. And then we've built this entire, like, deep, deep 20-page outline of what his movie would be. And I just, I I really hope that it happens. We've partnered with the producers of the original movie. And this would be big news if it happens. But right now, I don't know if it's going to happen because, again, uh, some of the producers who were attached to the original movie are having a hard time with it right now and uh you know i just hope that they keep their job long enough so that you know we can make this movie it would it would be uh it would be 10 year old me's dream come true to make this movie happen i mean the thing about this business is that you you never know like just when you you never know which one's gonna go for i'm sorry that was the actual answer to your question yes you have 
10 ideas thrown at you. And my theory has always been like, yeah, well, let's see where this goes because you'll look up the next day and all of a sudden it's down to eight. You know, I guess the problem becomes is if, you know, they all go forward. And then I, I feel like that's a, that's probably a good problem to have, but that's never actually happened. But it, but, but I'm saying also that this thing could, could go away. And then six months later, it's like, Oh, we're shooting it next week. Wait. Oh, hey, you guys had that spinoff idea. We love it. You know, yeah, yeah 100%. Uh, we once put all of our eggs into one basket. It was called um, it was called Our Time at HBO. We turned down so many offers because we were like, this is one thing. This is our baby. And we were there. We always said we were like Castro. We were there for three different presidents of HBO. When we arrived, it was one person, and then somebody else took over. And then by the time we were being pushed out the door, after making two pilots, by the way, um two pilots that i stand by to this day uh they you know we we were serving under a third president so it's it's just a really it can be really tough sometimes um to see projects that you love that are your heart go away but i think that's why you have to have a couple of lines out there because you don't know which one is going to actually make it all the way through we were shocked that we actually pitched sherman showcase to just ifc and we pitched uh Southside to just comedy central and we were shocked that they both went forward, but we never thought they'd both make it to pilot. They both made it to pilot. Then they both made the series and they both got 100% on Rotten Tomato. Like both got 100% on Rotten Tomato. And I, I feel like at that point, we felt like, you know what? The, the, the dreams that we had when we first started out in this business, they, they felt validated because, you know, even if one had gotten 99%, we'd have been like, oh, that stinker. You know, like they both got 100%. We both, and they're very different shows. And we put a lot of a lot of heart into both of them. We really did. And do you feel like having a partner like Bashir is that did that does that make the journey easier in a sense because you have someone else to keep you going? I mean, do you guys is there is there like is one of you more negative than, like or do you trade <laughs> off? Like how do you? It's a total trade off. I think sometimes the public perception of Bashir and I is that oh uh, Diallo is the nice one and Bashir is the Bashir's the tough guy. Like we really do in our own personal uh, time, we have quite a bit of trade-off because there are definitely sometimes when I'm the pessimist, like, oh, that, that thing's never going to happen. And then there are definitely times when I'm the one like, no, nah, Bashir, trust, trust me, it's going to happen. You know, um, it's like a, it's like a weird dance. I always, my, even my wife is just like, that's your first marriage. Like, you know, we've known each other for, years. we've known each other for, when did we meet? We met in 1995. So it's been, 25, 25 years, man. Your friendship is the same age as MTV singled out. That, uh, <laughs> that uh, gives you an idea. But we're, but we're younger than the grind. So, so I think we're okay. <laughs> we're younger than the grind. <laughs> I haven't thought about the grind in like two decades. Come on, man. With Eric, what was Eric Nees? Is that his Eric name? Eric Nees from season yeah, one man. of The Real World. <laughs> oh my God, the grind. Yeah, the those shows, like the, yeah. That was basically. That was Soul Train for MTV. That's yes. Like it was videos and people dancing. I miss the good dance show. That's kind of the reason, one of the reasons I like Sherman Showcase is because we're able to put so much spotlight on dancers. Like, uh, and by the way, the, our dancers, we auditioned them one time for their ability to dance. And the second audition was all jokes. Like we wanted to audition people who could be both good dancers and be talented comedians. And I've been blown away by some of our dancers on camera because they are so freaking funny they know their way around a joke um i kind of wanted the de- i kind of wanted the showcase dancers to be as famous as like the fly girls on in living color or the solid gold dancers like i wanted them to have their own 
fame outside of the show. I was also excited that I don't know. This might be a spoiler. If this is a spoiler. I'll cut it out. But you, you, you just sort of casually threw out that there is a <laughs> last dragon. Sketch. Not a spoiler. Not a spoiler. There's a last and, dragon catch in the black. And I said to you, I've seen that movie probably two hundred times, <laughs> and the there are two people like when I and I said to you when I was doing singled out. Like we would have, sometimes we would have celebrity guests come on and pick from the dating pool. And Tymac, who was, who played um, Bruce Leroy. Bruce Leroy. What, came on the show and I was beside myself with joy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I must have I hope you told him that. I hope you oh, told oh, him that. A thousand percent. I was like, <laughs> I've seen your movie so many times. Like I was, I was so beside myself to the point that like, I also said, you know, every so often I'll go on and see if I can find like, um, you know, a Daddy Green's pizza uh, T-shirt prop or something. That has to exist. We have to. We, somebody has made a, a Daddy Green's pizza T-shirt, right? I've Stuff seen like them. I probably like on Red Bubbles. Like, I don't know if they, I. I think just like fans have made them. You know, uh-huh. they just say directed your pizza to Daddy Green's pizza. But, but I. I, was I feel like Red so... Love has some some one of a kind shirts that he's made that reference the Last Drag. I feel like I've seen one. I wish I could remember what it said, but uh, yeah. I hope more people, wa- I mean, that movie was not only just a super cool and fun movie, but like a genuinely groundbreaking piece of cinema. <laughs> and I... Uh, I feel like every kid who saw it, like, immediately wanted to, like, karate chop and kick every single thing you saw coming out of the movie. Like, it was literally just like, you just couldn't control your hands at that moment. You Everybody wanted the glow. I wanted the glow, you know, you know, like you, like a good fighter could get their hands to glow, but a great fighter <laughs> could get their whole body to glow. By the way, the I, was problem, never able. I, I didn't even know that there was like, I didn't know that Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee was known as the dragon. So the idea that it's called the last dragon, it, it, it literally is just Barry Gordy trying to make some money off of a karate kung fu fad. You know, like it's it's such a in some ways it could have been such a cynical exercise, and uh, but yeah, we loved it. And the soundtrack is great too. Like the the vanity song Seventh Heaven. Like I put that on at a party one time, and people lost it. Like it's not a song that you think you know, but if you hear it, you're like, I finally found a place. You're like, oh, I know the song. Like <laughs> never say never. <laughs> At heaven's elevator door. What is she talking about? Because what is that about? Once you dare, you can't get it on the anymore. <laughs> that and uh, and I actually have, uh, I have on my phone. When you got the glow, you need the glow. You need the glow to grow to grow. I mean, I, Willie I Hutch love man. that song. Willie Hutch, the same guy who did, uh, he did. Brother, gonna work it out. Brother's gonna work it out. Like he did so many classic songs for movies. In some ways, he's the Mark Mothersbaugh of black cinema. Oh my god, that is the fucking greatest. Uncelebrated. That is, that is a that is the most genius. <laughs> that is the most genius thing. We, we can talk music for days. I, I feel like there's certain people, Mark Mothersbaugh and uh and who's my other favorite? Uh oh, Danny Elfman. Those are those are my two. I mean, like, I think the music for the 1989 Batman is the most perfect score that has ever been written. I, I, even, even if you don't like Batman, <laughs> like, 
that score, I bought that CD and I must, uh, that, that CD I listened to 800 times. I did everything. Well, it is, Pr- Prince was pretty good. <laughs> you know, Bad Dance got a really bad rap. I mean, like, I feel like millennials only know Bad Dance as a punchline to Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> right. But I was there and Bad Dance when it came out was pretty special. It was, it was not to keep using analogies, it's the sicko mode slash Bohemian Rhapsody of Batman movies because like it has like four or five parts. It's got the Vicky Vale, Vicky Vale. I like Batman, Batman, Batman. Like it's got three totally different parts to it. And it's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic. I, I just wish they had let Prince play the Joker. You know, that was his whole thing. He was like, I'll do the soundtrack, but you have to let me play the Joker. And oh my. at some point they told him, no, you're not going to play the Joker. <laughs> We're going to get this uh, Jack Nicholson character. Where is Jack? Is Jack okay? I feel like I we know. haven't seen Jack in like 10 or 11 years. Jack's in his 80s. I'm sure he must be in his 80s by now. I don't. I honestly don't know. That's, uh, that's crazy. There, Wait, there are always those people that you don't, you, you feel like they must not be alive, but then you figure out that, oh no, but I would know if they were dead. And it's just like... Uh, He's 83. Jack Nicholson is 83. But I also wonder... He doesn't want to act anymore. I mean, isn't there... um, Not Gene Wilder. Who's the guy? He's still alive, but he never never does anything. Oh, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. I I would imagine at a certain point, you know, like, you probably have to... When when people are that um, good and they really, like, know how to immerse themselves and, you know... it probably just feels like, oh God, I don't fucking feel like leaving my house to do that. How, like, what do I need? How much more attention? How much more money? Like, yeah. what is it that I need? And plus, and they I, did it when it was really fun to do it. You know, like they did it. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Like, they're, 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 you know, they were like, hey, Jack Warner, you can get me out of this, right? Like, you know, they, they have no interest in living in, in smartphone era Hollywood, you know. <laughs> I'm, what, what did you do for Baby Driver? Because I read that you, it said that you did music, you did something for yeah, the soundtrack so, for Baby Driver. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a, you know, my agent represents uh, Edgar and uh, Edgar Wright. And he was like, look, you know, I know that you're doing, I'm not going to imitate my agent. It's very tempting. He's such a character. Um, but he, uh, he told me that Edgar was shooting in Atlanta. He knew that I was from Atlanta and that I had a great interest in music. And can I just put you guys together? We met at Little Dom's uh over in uh los Feliz, and uh we hit it off and I, I feel like for a while like we were just buddies like something would happen on the news i'd be like edgar did you see that thing you know like we, we we were like just buddies for a little bit and um and then we would we would talk about music we talked about so much music for baby driver and admittedly at the time i had no idea that he really meant it when he was like the music is going to be the third character in the mute in the movie and when i finally saw a cut of it, I was blown away. And I felt ridiculous because it gave me the chance to have a walk-on speaking part in this thing. And I was shooting our stupid HBO pilot at the time. And so I didn't take him up on it. Uh, I would have loved to have been physically in the movie as well. But we, we worked on the music of Baby Driver together. And do you, is there any one particular thing that you like more than the other in terms of acting, writing, show running, music? Like what, or is it just no? You know, I you know what? It's one of those things where I missed the thing the most that I'm not currently doing. Like right now, I'm like, when am I ever going to be able to do any acting? Like it's mm-hmm. just a weird time. So I miss that a lot. But I think it's the it's the greatest gift of all to be ever to wake up in the morning and some days you have writing and acting, and other days you might have 
acting and just reading, you know, like I, I think it's, I always tell people, young people who are trying to get into this business that if I have any advice, try to be a member of all three of the major guilds, writer, uh, director, and SAG, you know, just try it, just try it, you know, because I think creative people, truly creative people have a lot of things to offer. We just finished shooting this uh, Sherman Showcase Black History Month, it's spectacular. We were putting John Legend in front of the camera again, and I always have people say, wow, John was really funny when you guys worked with him. I didn't know that he had those funny bones. I knew Chrissy was funny. I didn't know John was so funny. John is hilarious. And he's actually a really good actor. He memorizes, I can tell he memorizes his lines and he and the way he he's so eloquent. His breathing style is very similar to when he's singing. So I just think that if you're, if you're a creative person, give it all a try. It doesn't mean that you have to devote equal amounts of time to everything, but at least in the case of Bashir and I, we, we really enjoy everything. There was, I'll put it like this. When I was on a, the NBC show, Marlon, I loved being just an actor on that show. It meant that I didn't right. have to be in the writer's room until 3 a.m. trying to figure out how to tie the A story to the B story. <laughs> no, I just showed up the next day like a jerk. It was like, all right, let's see this drill you guys wrote. All right, let's. Oh, I just have uh, to stand there and say that. Okay, yeah, that's, that's no problem. <laughs> all right, I'll just wing it. I'll just wing it, you know, like. I, I love just being an actor on that show. And there have been other shows where I wouldn't want to be in front of the camera. I just want to write them. So, I, you know, every day is a little bit different. And thankfully, you know, we get to do something different every day. But something that I would love your advice on is I think one of the a really challenging thing in the business can be to assemble the right writer's room for the project. Yeah. Right. Because you really have to assemble this kind of Justice League of um different types of especially in comedy different type like everyone kind of has their own superpower but then they all kind of have to work together and so yeah. how do you because it feels like on all the stuff that you work on you really get the best out of your group out of your oh, that's cool performers and out of your and writers and and so how okay <laughs> what I'll, yeah I'll, I'll tell you what it is on sherman's we always knew that this was supposed to be a show that everybody can enjoy but music nerds in particular have to enjoy like that's got to be the demographic and so i hired everybody who i ever talked about music with in terms of like the the comedy writers i knew like and even some people i'd never met before one of the guys on sherman's just happened to go to my uh old high school and i knew rob hayes Do you know rob hayes uh he's from atlanta and uh he's about 10 years younger than me but he came to us via his agent or whatever I read his packet. It was really funny. And then I started talking to him on the phone and we, I have really giggled so much. Like we were talking about everything from two live crew to uh, dance hall music. I, I could tell he just really knew his stuff when it came to music. I was like, this is a perfect fit. And then there were other people who we brought in um, Emily Goldwyn, who is a, uh, you know, she's an LA kid. She grew up out here uh, with a really interesting uh, story, which I won't go into right now. But like she was like a, a she was a writer who was talented who reminded me of talking music with my hipster friends and I and and it's still like just so funny and her sense of humor is so weird <laughs> and she's she's such a quirky individual in herself like I was just like I want her in the room so it was really that was a conversation about music with Southside because we wanted to just live and breathe like the city we we reached out to all the funniest comedians who we knew were from Chicago who were also comedy writers. And we interviewed a ton of people there. Um, a lot of people you probably know, but we ended up hiring those. In that case, we ended up hiring the people who we thought were funny, but also when you read their script, they could tell a story. 
because we knew that as opposed to Sherman's, which is more like a sketch show, Southside, we really wanted the stories to be really tight. We wanted them to have, you know, really good structure. And so, so a couple of people we thought were funny, their scripts were a little weak. Uh, the people who we hired were the people who had great scripts and were funny. So every show is a little bit different. It depends on what you're uh, trying to get. Yeah, but you still have to get those performances and still get that material. Like, as, as the... It, it's it's not it's not just enough to be like a funny person or a good writer. You also have to sort of be like um, a content and personality manager at the same time, right? Because yeah. you have to kind of draw it all out and make sure that it, because you're guiding the the direction of everything. Well, you know, I will say that um, we've worked in every type of room. We worked in rooms where it was very clickish and um not you know like this side of the room is all they're gonna laugh at their own jokes but they're never gonna laugh at the people across the table like some rooms are are like that and and lauren has even said in interviews that like he likes to keep the snl room a little clickish just because he feels like that level of competition is like the stones versus the beatles it keeps everybody on their toes i think Bashir and i have always wanted to take a slightly different approach which is make everybody feel like you are loved pitch jokes that are absolutely garbage and we're not going to judge you, you know, because we, we really want everybody to feel safe because we think we're going to get the best material when everybody feels just safe in the room. Like I a thousand percent agree comedians. I feel like some comedians thrive in toxic environments, <laughs> yeah. but I, I thrive in comfortable environments. And, yeah. and I feel like that was always our mission with, like when people would come on at midnight, it's like, let's let the comics feel as comfortable and loved as possible so that they blossom and so that they open up, you know, as opposed to, yeah, the the, the feeling judge things. Like I get nervous if I feel like, you know, someone's judging my jokes and I feel less inclined. Like I shouldn't say this. It's just going to sound stupid. But when you feel free to like, oh, you can fuck around, you know, then I just feel like it's better. It's like everyone wins, you know? I think so, too. You know, there's a funny story about Sid Caesar's writer's room, which everybody, if you if you have it, if you don't know this story, just go ahead and Google uh, the Sid Caesar show and look at the list of people he had in that room. Some of them are still some of them are still alive. Amazingly, um, it's a murderer's row of some of the best comedic writers ever. And but apparently Sid Caesar was a complete jerk. And he like, you know, would bait people and really make you feel terrible about yourself all in an effort to, in his mind, get the best material. Fast forward to Andy Griffin, uh, one of the guys who worked on that show. And Andy Griffin gets approached by the network and they're like, hey, hey, Griffin, you know, like we're going to do a show uh, with you at the heart of it. And he's like, I have no interest. And they're like, why? We're offering you a show. What are you talking about? You don't have any interest. And he's like, I've seen what it takes to be the head of the show. And I would never want to do that. He was like, I, I, you got to be too mean and nasty. And I just, you know, you can imagine Andy Griffith saying this stuff. And it's, yeah. it's, he's like, I just don't have any interest in it. And they said, well, here's the deal, Andy. If you're the boss, you can set whatever tone you want. That's when the light went off in his head. And apparently he was one of the very nicest people in this industry you could ever work with. Uh, because he was determined not to be Sid Caesar. So... Oh my God, that's really incredible. I just imagine that when they said that to him and the light went off, the camera just pushes into his face and in his head, you hear. <laughs> like he just zoned. written the end of episode one <laughs> of the Andy Griffith story. There you go. <laughs> that opening credit sequence was in his head 
he just imagines the writer's room is a kid going fishing and uh, it's like, <laughs> oh, this can be great. He's like, man, I don't want to be in this room. I just want my old rod and reel and to be walking down a dirt street. <laughs> I want, I just want to feel like we're just going to go, we're just going to go catch a trout. That's what this is. This show is just going to be about catching um, trout. I hear that uh, Don Knotts was actually a really nice guy. I, I have a real love of those early Hollywood days, which is a little bit weird because as, as an African-American, like you often think like, would they have even liked me? Like, you know, like it's, I've literally, there've been times when like, I'll look up the name of a, of a, of a person whose artwork, Rodan, I'll look up Rodan and I'll type, I'll then type the word racist just to make sure that there's not something terrible in his past. I don't know about, you know? Um, but I, I also heard like stories about who was really magnanimous and who was really nice to people. And one of my favorite is Jack Benny, you know, like I think that the, the character of Rochester it it, it kind of grates on today's ears because you know you don't want to hear uh, what's up, boss, and all that kind of talk. But if you really listen to those old Jack Benny shows, they are excellent in a way that the Bob Hope shows are not. Like the Bob Hope shows are such timely jokes. Like the punchline will be like, "Well, I wouldn't say I was Roosevelt," and the audience goes crazy because it's a timely reference. But the Jack Benny show had characters that are so well defined that whether they're making timely jokes or not timely jokes. The characters are so well defined that, like, it's just it's funny to me to this day. Like, I love to hear his interplay with his band leader and 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 with Rochester and with all the all the wonderful characters. And apparently, Jack Benny, another one, just the nicest guy. Um, I was watching uh, Phil Hartman talk to Letterman in like a '93 interview, and he was saying how he's going to make a Jack Benny movie, and he breaks out like a spot on Jack Benny impression. I was like, holy smokes, Phil is the goat. And uh, and I'm really sad that he didn't get to make it because uh, he died like a year later or something like that. Oh, man. And and Phil Phil understood that like you know there are some true minchy dudes in our business who uh, are just really nice, super talented, super funny uh, people to work with. Yeah, and honestly, it really feels like um, you know those Jack Benny stories hopefully inspire people to, or the Andy Griffith story. It's like, oh, yeah, you can, you know, particularly in Jack Benny's case, because I think, you know, Sid Caesar probably made himself the alpha of all the sketches. And <laughs> Jack Benny, I think, probably made himself the beta of all the He's sketches. The, yo, like, absolutely. Jack Benny is basically just walking through a, a, a room full of crazy people who all get the big joke, you know. And they, get to, they get to shit on him and he just kind of looks <laughs> to camera and, and he wanted people to. He was I mean, very like, gracious. Yes. Yes. Because they, he just felt like, oh, people should shine. It's still technically my show, White, but show. they should shine. It's the Jack Benny show. You don't have to keep proving it to us night after night. Like, he, Jack was known for giving everybody else the big punchline. And I think that's awesome. And by the way, if you give them the big punchline, then you get to come in with, like, the sort of understated, like, straight man punchline, which, in my opinion, is, like, completely underrated. Like, I right. feel like Michael J. Fox was, like, the king of, like, letting Mallory say some crazy stuff. And then he would just say, really, Mal? And he would get a whole nother <laughs> joke, you know? Like, <laughs> like what you really, which honestly, as a writer, what I strive for is for a character to say something so absurd and hilarious that the other character, all they have to do is just sort of pause. The audience is already laughing because they know that they heard, we've all heard this crazy thing being said. And then it's just like, it's, 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 
it's slowing across the plate. The home run is is yours if you if you come up with the right understated response. You know, you you reminded me of my favorite Alex Keaton Alex P. Keaton <laughs> moment, which was it was that exact thing where Mallory told some completely <laughs> impossible to follow story that made a lot of sense to her. And then it just ended and then the story didn't really have an ending. And there was a pause and Alex just goes, it's quite a gripping tale, Mallory. Like it was just this, like, it was such a cut in this, like <laughs> such a fucked up way. And I didn't understand because I was just a little kid. So I yeah. didn't really understand that the joke of that show was, uh, super conservative kid with super hippie parents. Like right. that just totally, I kind of understood that. But looking <laughs> back, I'm like, oh, oh, I get it now. Like he was, you know, <laughs> he was a briefcase, the Young Republican Club. They were like the free love hippies. And so that's that was where the tension came from. With I, I, had, I had very sort of like very pro-Black conscious parents and, I was watching um, Family Ties, and I didn't adopt all of the, the the Reagan politics, but I definitely was impressionable enough that I started wearing a suit. I started wearing a, a tie to school every day and carrying all my books in a, in a in a briefcase. And all of that is due to Michael J. Fox making it look so fun and making it yes. look cool. But you only had to wait like a year before then you started wearing the sleeveless puffy vest from Back to the Future. <laughs> so. To this you day, to- anytime someone wears a puffy vest, I, I do think that I do think of Back to the Future. Which I thought you were going to say. I do ask them if they jump ship. <laughs> <laughs> What's with the life preserver? <laughs> um, Teen Wolf what Two. You- uh, can we talk about Teen Wolf Two real quick? Oh, with Jason Bateman. Not a bad or Teen movie. Wolf. Do you mean Teen Wolf or Teen Wolf T O O with Jason Bateman? Oh yeah, 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 T O O. You mean the original Teen Wolf? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can talk about the original Teen Wolf. Yes. No, no, no. I just, I was just reminded of like somebody who tried to come after Michael J. Fox, but it wasn't a bad movie. You know, like I feel like it, it definitely killed off that <laughs> franchise. But I, I liked it as a kid personally. You know, that was fun, and Doc Hollywood is a fun rewatch every once in a while. Is it really? I don't know if I saw that one as a kid. Um, you know, I, I feel like that's one that I miss. Is that Dan Aykroyd? No, no, no. Doc Hollywood is Michael J. Fox, big city doctor. He's driving cross country. Car breaks down in a small town. He ha- he like runs over the judge's fence. So they make him the town doctor while his car's being repaired. And they keep stalling <laughs> to keep him there. But he wants to go be a plastic surgeon in L.A. So it is just one of those like, high you know. <laughs> that's yeah. High concept. <laughs> well, but but at the core of it, it's just like, sure, you think the flashy big city's all great, but when you really kind of strip it all away, the most important thing are your neighbors and a glass of lemonade on your porch. Like it's one of those, it's one of those types of movies. I got it. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms 
who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find organic valley dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Um I uh I'm curious what, you know, in a time right now where it just feels like 2020 is just a series of like, really? What the fuck else? You know, like it's, how how are you personally finding spots of joy? How are you able to, and and how are you able to sort of communicate, you know, to your kids on days where I'm sure you feel like I don't fucking even want to get up and look at the news because (laughs) I know it's going to be miserable and bum me out. Like, what do you... What, what are you doing in those moments? Are you funneling it into comedy? Do you meditate? Like what's, what, I wish what, what I made, I, 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 meditation is one of those things. I'm like, why don't I just do it? Like, just do it. Like it clearly works. Um, can't seem to get around to it. I haven't been uh, sitting around depressed the whole time. I mean, like, you know, when COVID first came along, I, you know, that was absolutely terrifying and, and we're obviously still dealing with it. Um, when the demonstration started, I actually felt encouraged because it seemed like for the first time in my lifetime, people were like seriously taking concrete steps to address something that has been a problem for centuries. So, you know, I'm one of the people who I feel like there's hope, you know, some of the some of the new laws being passed, some of the yeah. new things that are happening. I, I, I feel, you know, and I hope that the rug isn't just pulled out from underneath all of this, but um I feel hopeful that this might actually lead to some long-term change because I've actually been shocked at some of the other things that have happened seemingly overnight in my lifetime. Like when, um, when gay marriage was, was approved by the uh, Supreme court, you know, like I, I think sometimes there can be just like a groundswell and things can get better for a lot of people. And I, and so I feel a little bit encouraged by that. I, I don't, I don't think that my approach to comedy has changed at all because it's always been just about like, what am I seeing and what do I think is true? If anything, it seems like nowadays people are more open to perspectives that aren't necessarily their own perspective or the perspective they grew up with, definitely not their parents' perspective. So again, I fault me for being an optimist. I feel hopeful that, uh, you know, times are, are getting better in some ways. Uh, I hope so too. And, 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 and I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over the fact that you just said something that was so, that was like, that any comedy writer or any writer really should listen to, to the extent that I'm legitimately going to write it down and try to remember it for my standup, but it's, you say, what do I see and what's true? I mean, even just that, that might seem so just, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. But I feel like it's something that I certainly forget most of the time. Oh yeah, I'm not writing a joke for the sake of a joke. What am I saying and what am I seeing and what's true? Like that is, I hope you understand how much I appreciate and what a, stunningly simple and elegant and beautiful piece of advice that is that I hope people really absorb who are creative types. I I appreciate it, man. Um, You know, I I think the results are always better when you write whatever you're seeing, because, you know, we have a song on the, on the black history month special called add some Kente. And we wrote it in October of last year, because in our families, like, Kente cloth was like that thing that your parents wore. Maybe you wore it to graduation, you know, the graduation Kente cloth. 
stole that a lot of you know black kids will wear at college but you know we thought it was just a funny idea for a song and then literally the week that it was coming out uh because we're on mad decent which is a uh, diplo's label the week that it was coming out was the same week that like nancy pelosi and chuck schumer are wearing uh kente cloth uh you know in honor of george floyd and so people thought that we had come up with that song within like three or four hours like they were just like i can't believe you guys could you guys are a ragtag team of comedians huh and i'm like guys we, this thing was written and shot in january you know like it's just but I, again i feel like the world is coming around to opening its eyes to some things that have been hiding in plain sight i'll say and uh i think again you just gotta yeah you just gotta look around man um i really have enjoyed we run into each other a couple times at events and you've yeah. always been so nice to me and so like complimentary of at midnight. And it really means a lot to me because uh, I am a fan of your work and I really, I have so much respect for what you do. And it always makes me feel good because uh, even if you were just nice to me, it would make me feel good. But the fact that you like the show that I, you know, like the shows that I've worked on, um, it really means a lot to me. And I, I've enjoyed our our texts back and forths. And I really, really appreciate getting to know you. And I really just, I don't know. I, I, I would be, I would, I would hope that we would get to do something together. I would someday. hope that we would actually be able to get together in person one time. Cause you know, it's, it's oh my God. Like that would be awesome. But it, um, no, I think it's all really cool, man. You know, like uh, I'm a fan going back, you know, to the, to, to meltdown, to the meltdown days. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I really want to see what, what, what comes next and hopefully we can find something that we can work on together. Cause I think we have a lot of the same touchstones and uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Well, that, and that's one of the fun things I love about this kind of journey through comedy is that when you meet people that you really connect with, maybe this is a, a getting older thing, but you really understand how precious that is and, and how special that is because, you know, it doesn't, it, I mean, you know, like, comics can sort of dogpile jokes on top of one another all day long. But when you meet someone else that you know, like, oh, we understand all the same references and we get a lot of the same, I mean, I don't know. It just, it just, it, it's, it feels like. Um, That's how you build your room. That's how you build your room. You find the people who you like talking to for hours and hours about movies, comics, TV, and all that stuff. And then out of those conversations comes something really pleasant because if it could, if it can make, a room of the right eight to 10 people laugh. Trust me, there are other people out there who are, who are laughing to it. I, I always say my formative years of thinking like, oh, TV, I, maybe I could do that one day. Um, I feel like it started with the show, started with the show Moonlighting, but like everything that I've tried to do in my career, I, I equate more to the work of like Joss Whedon, who I feel like he, he tries to invest every single scene with some level of Easter egg or fan service or just, it's almost like his love letter to humanity because right. he, you know, and I feel like that's what we've always tried to do. We've always tried to do something that, you know, if we, if, if, I'll put it like this, if we weren't writing TV shows, I would be writing fan fiction using other people's characters. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, and by the way, I, I did waste many a time in college adding to the canon of the Star Wars expanded universe. And now none of that stuff is canon and all my, all my labor is, has amounted to nothing, but, um, I do hope that, uh, I do hope that one day we get to work on something together. That'd be a lot of fun. Is there anything else that you're working on that you want to talk about, promote anything? Um, 
Uh, I think, well, I'll, I'll just say real quick, Sherman Showcase, the Black History Month Spectacular is coming on AMC this Friday night at 10 p.m. And then there's actually a marathon of season one on IFC. It starts at 8 p.m. and then it ends at 11 p.m. with a second airing of the Sherman Showcase Spectacular. Um, we just finished work on this John Legend Father's Day special, which I think is going to be really funny. That's on ABC on Father's Day this Sunday. And then separately... Uh, I did a I did a short with Tracy Morgan for the ESPYS, and that'll be airing on Sunday as well. Uh, and you'll I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, I play <laughs> I play a, Hank, a, a long lost cousin of Hank Williams Jr. named Tank Williams, and uh, <laughs> and I sing a very cool song about <laughs> the state of sports. And I, I I won't I won't cheat it any more than that. <laughs> is there uh and just also musically is there anything else that you're i mean you're probably writing a lot of songs for the shows that you're working I on a lot of songs for, look sherman showcase season one soundtrack is out on mad decent shout out to mad decent I've, I've really had more fun than working with them on these soundtracks there's also a separate soundtrack for just the black history month spectacular and i actually think that's the killer soundtrack because we've got we've got house music we've got you know jamaican dance hall we've got you know some trap We've got a little bit of everything for everybody on that uh, soundtrack. And I've really enjoyed, you know, Bashir and I met in an acapella group. So music's been a part of what? our- What? the beginning. Yeah, I know. I know. You're thinking we're way too cool for acapella. <laughs> no, I fucking love acapella groups. Are you kidding me? I when think I was in- so nerdy. I'm so ashamed of myself. But yeah, we were an acapella group. We 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 splintered off um, our, our previous acapella group and formed our group with um, a couple other friends. We called it Brothers. And we were there to sing like, you know, secular songs like Jodeci and Silk and Shy and a bunch of like '90s R&B. Uh, each one of us thought we were Usher Raymond, so that was that was my, <laughs> those were my college years in Boston. I I unironically love acapella groups. Like when when I was in college. <laughs> I had a Take Six CD that I listened to over and over and over and tried to, I tried to map out all the harmonies, um, wow. but I I just wasn't, I'm not, I'm not great. Like I, that's when I realized that that's not something I'm great at because it, but just the interweaving of voices to where every voice has a very specific point in space to very, um, perfectly complement a group of other voices at that point in space and then zigzag around like it just to me it's right. i can almost see it um the guy who was the sort of leader it. of our group um sheldon uh he was amazing in, in terms of like because sometimes them harmonies are so hard to find and you're just like you really want me to sing that note that's really going to sound good with all those other notes in there and that was um i feel like that takes a whole talent set that i don't understand, but the harmonies were were magical. Um, and that I'm so happy that I got an acapella before it became like, you know, the the uh, what is the Pitch Perfect movies came out. You know what I mean? Like, because now I feel like there are all these people. Like, there's so much more theatrics in acapella now. When I when we were doing acapella, it was a lot more of this. And uh, you know, the Crocodillos were at Harvard, and the Whiffle Poofs were at uh, I think that's what they're called. That was the big Yale group the Den and Tonics. There was always some witty name for the group. That was always a whole nother uh, thing that you had to come up with. Other, that was a whole other layer yeah. that you had to, <laughs> yeah, it had to be some sort of a weird thing. But it, uh, I've always found it very difficult to listen 
to someone else singing and not start to veer into their yeah, like not start up, to veer right. into their lane. So it's like you have to listen, but then block off the part of your brain that wants to follow <laughs> and stick to, oh, I'm supposed to go down here and then up there. And then like that's it. I've always had a hard time. We always did four-part harmony. They're, they're obviously like as many parts as people nowadays, but four-part harmony is always good because as you even if you wanted to go up there, you probably don't want to go up there. You know, like right. you'd always like, you know, I, what was I? I was, a, I was an alto. Um, I'm pretty sure I... As long as I didn't slip up into like, you know, tenor or something like that or soprano, uh, I was okay. But it, yeah, those are fun times. You know, it was always fun to get in front of people and, and perform. And we, you know, have, if you had a coffee shop, we probably sang at your coffee shop. <laughs> we were down at sing pretty much anywhere. <laughs> well, it's really good to see you. I'm glad that we got to see each other, at least even via Zoom. And, uh, and hopefully one of these days when... I guess people can technically go out and do stuff now, but <laughs> it still feels like it's not allowed. You know what I mean? It still feels like oh, I agree with is you, that man. A trick? Are you sure? Uh, Wait, really? <laughs> I'm with you. Trust me. I see people on their IG stories like I'm out. I'm not scared of anything. Doing my thing. I'm like, oh god, this does not look. It doesn't even look fun to me. I think what's interesting are the things that I don't even miss. Like I don't. To a certain extent, I don't miss driving to work. Like most of what I do for a living, like I can do here, except for, you know, going for the cameras or something like that. So, you know, I, I don't miss a whole lot. Do you miss a lot of stuff? I mean, like I miss seeing people, but I don't miss like, you know, going, to, two going to restaurants all the time. You miss what? Well, I, I miss two things. I, w- I would go to a cafe every morning and write. That was part of my writing ritual. Okay. That's I've barely written anything since I've been at home because I'm not, I'm just not in my ritual. It's hard to compartmentalize. Yeah. Yeah. And two, I miss doing stand up. you know, like I just yeah. miss, I miss live yeah. performance. But outside of that, Lids and I are, my wife Lydia and I are like total homebodies. And, yeah. you know, when they're like, don't go anywhere, we're like, no problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> How long, you know? And so, yeah, you're right. Like we had a pitch meeting at AMC and we did it all yesterday and we did it all via uh, video conferencing. And I thought about the three hours that I wasn't in my car driving back and forth to Santa Monica in rush hour traffic. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then going, and it's better for the environment, you know? So it, I don't know. Yeah. So there, I, I do think that the new normal will be some common, because I said to the AMC people, like, is there a reason to ever go back into offices? And they're like, well, you know, it's, you know, like, be, like socializing, being around people. I go, yes. But I wonder if moving forward, it'll be the balance of you, you can go in, but you don't have to all the time and we can still economize our time and streamline some things and protect the environment and you know like there i feel like yeah. it'll be a balance of those two things of going yes. in some place but then also a percentage of the time now we realize like oh you don't really have to no you really don't when, when executives would drive from like burbank all the way to your studio in santa monica and do stuff like that like i feel like that's not needed anymore yeah that you're not going to be able <laughs> Not to turn into a Californian sketch, but the Valley people (laughs) will probably from this point forward, literally never go to Santa Monica again. They're like, no, we don't have to. We have the technology now. There's no reason for me to do that. That's why, you know, I do kind of miss those things with those confabs where I'd see you and I'd see all the dead stars. And um, yeah, I mean, you're at your, yeah, because I remember in the early days of Walking Dead, they would fly you out to New York to do these like, oh, it was probably for upfronts. Yeah. And 
So I just remember being at this event and even at the time, I, like I never took it for granted and they had this space and it was like, you know, I was there and Norman, I, Norman was there and Steve Young was there, but then also uh, Aaron Paul, like, cause Breaking Bad, you know, it was Breaking Bad too. Yeah. And they had this whole, like, so they would do the upfronts and then they had this whole walkthrough where it was like, here's a walking dead set. And then they had people, you know, they had these people making, you know, blue meth in another room. And, and it was just, <laughs> it was just such a fun, it was just like, yeah. it was like a mini Comic-Con sort of, but for at a place that you worked at. I don't know. It was really Dude, fun. When we were at HBO, like, I feel like Game of Thrones was in its prime. And I'll never forget. They took over the entire Roosevelt Hotel. Oh, wow. We walked in and it was like, they had archery. They had like these things you could put in your mouth and blow smoke out like a dragon. Like if there was so much money in just the Game of Thrones parties alone, it was just insane. And I, and I, I miss a good party, man. I, you know, my birthday is coming up in like 14 days or something like that. And I, I don't know, what am I going to do? Just like hang out at the house probably. Um, Zoom, Zoom party. <laughs> so Personal invite, Chris. Yeah. One yeah. Um, Friday night after the second airing goes off at at nine p.m. Pacific time, um, yeah. midnight out there. But nine, uh, I am gonna have a Zoom party, and my Zoom parties have been real. I'm not just. I'm not. This is not me inviting you to my DJ gig, but my Zoom parties have been. <laughs> no, they, they've been like fifty people. Really fun. You can come for two minutes. You can come for two hours. Like whatever. But I would like to. I would like to send you the invite so that you. I can would love. Through. I would love it. I would love there, it. There've been some really fun. Uh, Nigel Lithgow, Lil John, uh, who I think you might know from because I've seen him on the couch a few times, and uh, yeah. Marlon Wayans, and and just like really fun people in the Zoom. So if you're not doing it at nine p.m. on Friday, you should come through the Zoom. I would absolutely love that. I would love that. And I and I I kind of want to. I kind of want to end with just, I'm, I'm just curious. Cause we're talking about like, you're talking about your HBO experience at the Roosevelt and I was talking about AMC and stuff for you. How do you, do you feel like you've made it? How do you know that you've made it? Cause I guess when I yeah. look back at those moments, did I recognize like, Oh, I think I'm doing the thing that I set out to do. Like, <laughs> do you recognize it when it's happening or do you feel like a lot of times it's retrospective? Like when you look back and you go, Oh my God, actually, that was a really cool thing. Did I recognize that at the time? Did yeah. I appreciate that at the time? So how do you, how do you, how do you know, like, how do you define, like, what is defined? Well, how do you define making it in your head? You know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> this is probably not something I should be so honest about, but I don't feel like I've made it. Uh, I often tell my wife, like, when is, when, when, when will I feel like I've accomplished anything in life? Like, I just feel like I have not really accomplished this is not me being quite i don't feel like i've accomplished a whole lot yet uh i do hope that at some point um <laughs> you know like i'll have enough money to never worry about money again and also create something that is such a cultural touchstone that i feel like oh yeah i really i really did something there that was that was really cool and and people definitely noticed and it and it pushed the needle in this direction I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like I have that with Sherman's and Southside, but I don't know. There's something, you know, I'm not saying that I need the Aaron Spelling 112, you know, room mansion and like, you know, 40, you know, four, how many TV shows do you do? Like something like 205 TV shows over the course yeah. of my career. Um, I don't need Dick Wolf, you know, levels of, of residuals coming every month, but I do kind of want 
a point in my life to just feel like, you know, I, I have, have pushed the culture and I've, I'm feeling creatively fulfilled and, you know, I can have a pool, you know, there's no pool at our house. <laughs> um, and that's, feel like, that's being really blunt, you know, because I think one thing that we were talking about earlier, like in 1976, you know, if you had a show on the air, that was good. Nowadays, you know, TV shows get six episodes, eight episodes. They air maybe, you know, 500,000 people tuned in to the number one episode in that season. And then you're just like sort of back to looking around to see what's new on the landscape. You know, I, I would love to uh, have the impact that Issa Rae has had with Insecure. You know, I, to, to me, that 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 might be, you know, what I consider success. Kenya Barris has had success. Shonda Rhimes has had success. I know I've named three sh black showrunners, but, you know, I, I really do look up to, uh, you know, all types of all types of people who've worked in this industry. And uh, hopefully at some point it'll feel real. But I, I totally know what you mean. I, I think you I think they're probably and by the way, to me, you've made it. But I'm sure there have been times when you said, have I made it? You know, like and. I think that's maybe just something that we all deal with. I don't know. I think sometimes it feels it's retrospective because when you're in the moment, you're caught up in the momentum and you're trying so hard to keep all the plates spinning and to maintain and to not, you know, like not drop it. Yeah. And so it's, it can be hard to live in the present, you know, and it really, the appreciation stuff, I think is all about living in the present. And so a lot of times you look back retrospectively and go, oh yeah, actually, oh, that thing was actually pretty cool. Was oh pretty yeah, cool. we did yeah. that. And so I, I just hope that, you know, in my mind, you have made it. And also, you know, that I hope that, you know, if whatever that metric is in your head of like, finally, okay, I have this thing, or I've, I feel like I've moved the needle in this direction and I have, you know, the pool or, or whatever <laughs> that I hope that you're not so conditioned to not see it, that you don't see, you know what I mean? Like, I hope you see it because yeah. you, you are making um, really great original, you know, groundbreaking comedy and television and you do so many different things that, um, you know, it just, I don't know, maybe some people need that kind of fire. Like they need to feel like they've never quite made it to stay motivated. I don't know. But, but I do hope that you're able to, um, you know, take those moments and go, oh shit, actually, yeah, two uh, shows, you know, like, I don't know. It's, you're doing a lot of really fucking cool stuff. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. And you know what? I'm glad that we've had this conversation because I think if I have a more clear idea of what I'd actually like to do, then maybe I can have a better idea of how to get there. You know, yeah. because I, I feel like, you know, this conversation has left me a changed man in the sense <laughs> that I'm not even kidding. I'm like, you know what? That is a very good point, Chris. And you know what? I need to spend some time thinking about that. I really do. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I also have been changed by the, I like, I, I really can't wait to go back and look at the jokes that I've been writing and saying, what am I seeing? And what is the truth of this? Like, I, I'm going to burn those two questions on, I'm going to pin them to the top of my comedy notes list because I just think it's such a great foundation when you think about writing comedy rather than jokes for joke's sake like well what is this about and what's the truth of it so I, I that I thank you for dude I can't wait to talk to you again man this has been it's awesome. good to see you uh, yeah. good luck with the special this week and hopefully I'll see you at the at the zoom uh, get together this is the zoom party we call it um, I forget what we call it but it's a fun time so I'll definitely send you the information Cool. Thanks, Diallo. It's good to see you, man. Take care. Take care, Katie.
You too. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. See ya. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.